I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Beans. Well, we're back from our post-October break. Mm. Feeling refreshed. Not really, because <laughs> by, by break, I mean I was definitely ill for a while, and so I couldn't do anything for like 10 days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, I was on a roll. I know. And then it totally ruined it. Guys, don't fuck with RSV. It mm-hmm. is a beast. I know. And then my household was sick. It was running through there and just You Bowie guys had a little of everything. We had a little bit of everything. None of it was COVID. So I don't know, which is Big great. Time. And uh, <laughs> Bowie and I just held out in a corner. You were like in a magical like force weeks. field. Yeah. It's kept, really miraculous. Kept pumping her with breast milk. So. Were you just like taking a sip too? Like, yeah. I, I'm going to be all right. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. One for you, one for me. Yeah, you're like, Leslie, I thought you were producing more. It'll be like, no, no, still just a little bit. You just have to recycle. Yeah. I, it's, fine. it's fine. I care about the earth. Yeah, it's like pee. You yeah. know, it'll hydrate you. That was not the route to go. It's like no. pee, Leslie. John might have to cut that. <laughs> Anyway, after my week of dying of illness, I feel like I earned an old and weird case. Okay. They're always our favorite. Mm-hmm. And boy, oh boy, am I bringing it to you this week. Today, we are covering the legend of the Greenbrier ghost. <laughs> I feel like it needs like a... <laughs> it sounds so exciting, though. It's like a good name. It's like a pretty name, too. Mm-hmm. And this, oh, guys, this is one of the... One of the most fun episodes I've ever written, or I should say the most fun I've had writing one. Mm. This episode might be tied with the one we did about Elmer McCurdy, which is usually the recommendation I give anyone who's never listened to We Would Be Dead before. Mm. It's light. It's fun. It's full of weird, trivia-worthy information. All in all, it's awesome. It's called Pew Pew Kaboom. It's got a fun title. (laughs) It's got one of the best openings. It's Mm -hmm. just a solid episode. Every time you say that, though, I always, for some reason, my first thought is that you're talking about Albert Fish. Elmer McCurdy? Yeah. Oh, when no. When you say that, and I'm always just like, oh, because is that the nipple belt one? No. Oh, which is the nipple? See, I am so Ed bad Gein is the nipple, nipple belt one. Well, either Albert way, Fish is the one them, that, like, ate children. Right, right. But and you way, had to read the letter. That's right. That's right. But either way, all of them were gross. And then, yeah. but then I'll be like, oh, wait, no, no, no. I remember this. No, this is the guy that like couldn't rob trains and melted bank safes into one big chunk. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, he was great. Uh, And this episode, it has some of those hallmarks. And you know what? I did not expect what I got this week at all. Mm -hmm. First of all, the Greenbrier ghost is a story that borders on a legend. It's folkloric. It takes place in Appalachia. It's supernatural. And so naturally, I thought that we were going to have to ruin it. Mm. Leslie, you and I have had this discussion many times. In case you guys don't know, we have a very love-hate relationship with covering legends and ghost stories and cryptids because more often than not, we spend an hour and a half ruining them with the truth. (laughs) It's sad. It really is. 
it can get depressing to drain all the mystery out of the world. But, but I did not have to do that this week. What? I know. I kind of can't believe I'm saying this, you guys. But in this story, the ghost is real. Okay. I mean, I fully, I fully believe the ghost activity in this story happened as told. Ooh, so there's like no Sherlock Holmes that popped in? Nope. Nope. Okay. Nobody's like faking it with a light in a sheet or like yeah. <laughs> telling a weird story to cover something up. No, no, I really think it happened. And no amount of like, oh, but actually investigation proved that wrong. Okay. Oh my God. And this story, I learned so many weird things this week which is cool. I love to learn a weird thing. Mm -hmm. And on top of all of that, the women in this story find actual justice in one of the most remarkable ways I have ever seen. It is a wild ride. I can't wait to hear it. You're going to like it. I know it. And I got so excited about writing this one that I stayed up all night last night working on it. No kidding. I'm excited, but also like pretty, pretty exhausted. Yeah. And I must look really scary. Mm -hmm. Poor mm -hmm. Leslie. She must be terrified over there. I mean, I can't see you through the bags under my eyes, so. That's right. You have your own sleep deprivation going on over there. Mm -hmm. And it got really cold in New Jersey last night. Yeah. So I'm just sitting over here with my big, tired, hollow eyes and like white fingertips hunched over a computer shivering like a weird little gremlin. Right. Right. So imagine <laughs> that for me, but with like a, another tiny human attached. Just latched on. Yeah. <laughs> great. We look good. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun, but it's not great for the self-esteem. It is not. No, it's no. not. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. <laughs> Don't turn the lights on. <laughs> We're just hissing. Yeah. <laughs> you just find me like under the light of the television. <laughs> Sometimes that's how it is. <laughs> and listen, I have tried every single remedy known to humankind to perk my haggard face up, but unfortunately, none of them have worked. However, I do remember hearing the legend of one magical ingredient that can take care of all of our woes in one shot. And that ingredient is just a little pinch of... Validation, a hill worth dying on. You in the TV lights singing that song. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my validation? It's more like validation. A hill worth dying on. Yeah, yeah. That really captures it best, I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah. That's perfect. Come to me, validation. Come to me. That goes in our ads. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. Best of all, Leslie. Yeah. Our friends can give us this. Not weird at all. Priceless <laughs> ingredient. Totally free of charge. Wait, but how? But how? You must be asking yeah. yourself. I could just tell. Yes. Well, I will tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention. Attention equals support. And support equals more and better content for all of you. That's nice. So nice. But if you just can't wait for more We Would Be Dead in your life, don't worry, you don't have to. Mm. You can simply support us over on Patreon. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies. I highly recommend both Thanksgivings as the current season demands it. Yes. 
You'll also get some special mini-sodes, our weekly after show, Host Mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. And that is coming back. Don't worry, you guys. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, some giveaways, merch deals, an on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. In all honesty, we are here thanks to our patrons. So come on over and be part of the We Would Be Dead family. It's nice. It's a nice family. Except for they're like, you're all sick. I don't want to be in any of your families. <laughs> they can hide in my corner with me. Holly's voice is like 10 octaves lower and she yeah. can't stop coughing. Leslie's like a little golem in a corner. Yeah, just passing out breast milk. <laughs> <laughs> you want some? <laughs> <laughs> breast milk and blueberries, it's all I got. Look, we're doing great. <laughs> just like the Jersey Devil, Mom. Oh my God. <laughs> Listen... It feels right. Yeah. Feels really right. And if all of that is a little too much for you, and I can't imagine why it would be, <laughs> you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a fun time. Leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell. Tell the wildest person you knew in your 20s, but now she's moved back into our little town and she's trying to be a boring mom. But we all remember when she used to do coke off a toilet tank at 3 a.m. and then get herself out of trouble by making out with a cop. Oh, geez. What's her name? Oh, gosh. Mandy. Yeah, that is her name. Then your friends and Mandy can become fiends and we can all hang out together. Yes. And, like, she's fun for hangouts, so, like... She's great. We just, you know, she, she goes by Amanda. That's right. Personally now, but, but we don't use that. We no, still we call, still her, call Mandy. her Mandy when we're in our groups. Absolutely. It's right. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And I think that's all I have in the way of announcements for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Uh, yes, actually. Oh, I know. I just wanted to let our some of our patrons know um, some of our best fiends forever that I had contacted before about getting some gifts in the mail. Mm. Um, I got out a whole bunch of them, but there is a portion of them that have not been sent out yet because I went into labor. We understand. <laughs> and uh, I promised to get those to you. Most of them were my local patrons, so they were just going to be hand-delivered. Hand-delivered. Look yeah. at that service. So um, I'm Perfect. hoping to do that soon. It's yeah. okay. We can be patient. You were I very promise. busy. I promise. I did warn everybody yeah. in the episodes that you weren't there for. I was like, um, I'm so sorry to all our patrons. I love you very much, but Leslie handles the vast majority of that stuff. So <laughs> when she comes back, she'll get you, I promise. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm very busy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that was a, that's a good announcement. Okay. All right, then. On with the show. Our story takes place in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, all the way back at the dawn of the 20th century. I was just in West Virginia. I know. I'm mad that, like, I didn't have all of this information then. Mm. Greenbrier is a large county, the second largest in the state, actually, and it measures in at 1,025 square miles, which is a big freaking county, and has a population, according to the 1890 census, because we're talking about back then, of a little over 18,000 people. It's more now, obviously, mm -hmm. but not by a whole lot. It's stayed pretty level. 
The county seat is Lewisburg, which is a snappy little city with a Main Street USA feel to the downtown area. But that's not where we're going today. Oh, no. Today, we are in a little town. And it's not even called a town in every piece of information. Sometimes it's just called an area. (laughs) Uh, It's called Meadow Bluff. And oh boy, howdy. The only thing I can find um, of note in that area is a place called the Mystery Hole. Oh no. (laughs) TripAdvisor said there was, I shit you not, nothing to do nearby. (laughs) You know what it's like? Activities. It was like, there isn't any. Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing. Not even cow tipping. Nothing. I have never encountered such an answer before, but Yelp delivered. It's fine. Okay. The mystery hole is like pretty much exactly what it sounds like if you're not a pervert. It's (laughs) so not what it sounded like to me. Not what you think it sounded like. (laughs) No, it is a roadside attraction and gift shop that I can really only give you cartoon references to describe. It's kind of like Ripley's Believe It or Not, but like just the not. Okay. It's 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 the mystery shack in Gravity Falls. It's okay. exactly that. It looks just like that. It's okay, all the same okay. colors. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Great. It's like the start of a horror film. Well, kind of. Well, if we're talking about um, the Rob Zombie one. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was picturing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the beginning of House of a Thousand Corpses. Okay. That's what it is. <laughs> I was like, cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> Both are correct. I'm so mad we didn't go there when we were in West Virginia. Yeah. (laughs) And it's not even in Meadow Bluff, by the way. It's just close by. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So if you guys go to the mystery hole, please, please take a thousand pictures. Mm -hmm. But, my dear fiends, even Yelp and TripAdvisor are wrong sometimes. Oh, man. I know. I'm, I'm ruining your life right now. Shocking. If you find yourself in Meadow Bluff, West Virginia, and I don't know why you would, but if you do, You could take a ride out to Dietz Farmhouse, which is an historic home that was formerly the headquarters of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Maybe you could like spit on it or something. I don't know. That could be fun. Or you could do something you'll actually enjoy. I'll take that option. That's the good one. That's the road I'm going to go down. For sure. I recommend you hop in your car and get on Route 60. Pay attention because you're not going far. You are looking for exit 156. Just south of the exit ramp, you will see a white metal trail marker in the grass. Pull over. Just trust me, okay? The trail marker will read, Interred in nearby cemetery is Zona Hester Shue. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to the state prison. Only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Now that you probably feel like someone is standing behind you or staring at you or something equally mm-hmm. horrible, mm-hmm. get back in your car and make your way to the old Kanawa Turnpike. Turn off on Farmdale Road. It will seem like there is nothing out there, but there is, trust me. After a few minutes, you will see a tiny old white clapboard church. Park your car in the lot and walk towards the chapel. There is a wooden sign out front that reads, Soul Chapel Methodist Church, 
founded 1849. Don't worry, we're not attending a service. Just making sure you're in the right place. It's pretty remote, and you will quite possibly be the only person there. But just beyond the churchyard lies a cemetery. The graves are small, and some are very, very old. Others are a little more modern, but there's nothing ornate. Here and there, you'll see flowers or a pinwheel. But you're looking for a headstone that is slightly bigger than the rest, with an array of silk flowers and trinkets sat before it. You'll know it when you see it. The epitaph reads, In memory of Zona Hester Shue, the Greenbrier Ghost, 1876 to 1897. Now, obviously, you can't bury a ghost. There's no ghost under the soft grass where you're standing, but there is Zona's mortal remains. Her ghost, I imagine, is a little harder to pin down, but it's there, floating in the ether around you. And if you stand there long enough in the stillness, perhaps she'll tell you what happened to her all those years ago. But it's not easy listening, so I hope you brought a friend. And should you meet the Greenbrier ghost, I hope she didn't. But just in case you travel all that way and Zona Hestershoe doesn't appear to you because she's been quiet for quite some time now, why don't I tell you her story instead? And also because Leslie does not want to go there and do that. Nope, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time I could hear you in my head being like, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm okay. I'm not pulling over on the side of the road. I'm not. I'm not no. No, I'm good. I'm mm-hmm. really good. I absolutely would. To tell the story of the Greenbrier ghost, we will stay in Meadow Bluff, West Virginia and its surrounding areas. Just, okay. just areas. But we're going to have to travel back in time. And to be quite honest, it's not going to look very different than it does now at first. Elva Zona Hester, who always went by Zona, I guess she didn't like Elva, (laughs) was born just outside Meadow Bluff at the foot of the Little Sewell Mountain in 1876 to her parents, Jacob Hedges Hester and Mary Jane Robinson Hester. There is not a whole lot of information about Zona's childhood or family out there. And believe me, I looked. When I tell you there isn't anything, there really isn't. We know that Zona was the eldest of three children, and she had two younger brothers, Harold, born in 1882, and Lenny, born in 1888. Not Leonard, Lenny. Lenny. Yep. Lenny sadly passed away at just three years old. His cause of death is unknown, but um, this was a pretty dangerous time to be a baby, so like, it could have been just about anything. Sadly common. The Hesters lived in an isolated area, and from what little we know of that area, we can surmise that they must have made their living farming. After all, it was pretty much the only option out there. We know that all of the Hesters were buried in the same Methodist cemetery as Dona, so we can assume they probably attended that church. Um, They would go to services in the little white chapel that is still standing today. And we know that Mary Jane, Zona's mother, had family in the neighboring town of Falling Springs. It does have a waterfall, in case you were wondering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty. Yeah, it's, it's super pretty, actually. It looks like a postcard. I didn't think it was real. And at the time, it was a little more developed than Meadow Bluff. Uh, and Zona was close to these cousins who lived there, so she visited them a lot, which would be her first taste of life outside of the family farmhouse. So she'd be like, ooh, other people. So mm-hmm. exciting. And she really liked it a lot. She didn't love being super isolated all the time. The rest of Zona's life until she turned 21 is completely undocumented. She likely helped out on the farm and began spending more and more time away from her isolated rural home. 
We do know that she took a real interest in city boys. Love a city boy. She saw a life for herself out in the real world. And the only way for a woman to get that kind of a life back then was to get married. Luckily, Zona was an attractive, outgoing young woman and didn't have much trouble finding men. Keeping them, however, that was another story. Mm. Well, I mean, that's those city boys for you. It is those city boys for you. And she was kind of liberal with her affection. Mm, Let's put it that way. No judging, man. We all were. She briefly went around with a man named George Woolridge. I can't even say dated because I don't know that they actually dated. Yeah. And after one night of, quote, moonshine and a particularly bumpy buggy ride, Zona found herself pregnant. Oh, wow. I know. See, I'm telling you, she was like, I'm going to find a husband. Yeah. George, however, didn't have a steady job or savings and therefore couldn't possibly support a wife and a child, even if he wanted them, which he didn't. The worst person to get. Poor choice. Poor choice, city boy. (laughs) No good. And so he left Zona high and dry. Her parents were, like, not very excited about all of this either, obviously. they were like, you picked the wrong boy. And also, you're pregnant and not married. Yeah. This is the worst. All that is known about this child is that it was born. The town records list it as Hester Woolridge, which is just both of their last names put together, born in 1895. And then that's all. That's all we got. All I can find is that in 1895, there were over 20 orphan asylums in the state of West Virginia, and it was very, very common for parents who could not manage their children to turn them over to the state. It was always assumed that orphans were, you know, kids that didn't have parents, but actually at the time, upwards of 50% of these kids had parents. They just couldn't, they couldn't pay for them. They couldn't. so sad. I know, it's really sad. I assume Zona would have stayed on the farm during the visible part of her pregnancy, And then she would have given birth to the child and immediately turned it over. Having a child out of wedlock would have been total social suicide in those days. You'd be like a ruined woman. Yeah. So I assume that this all happened in secret. Things are not going great for our girl. But she's not going to let a little thing like surrendering her oldly child hold her back, is she? I guess not. No way. (laughs) Absolutely not. It's 1895. She's young and ambitious, and the world is changing at a breakneck pace. And she's fertile. Super fertile. So, you know, a prize. Yeah. Zona went back to visiting her cousins and making her way out in the world. She still wanted that man, but this time she thought, I'm going to find one with money. There you go. Good thinking. You know, you got to learn from your mistakes. But this is not a super easy task in a place that doesn't have towns, it has areas. Mm, True. So, yeah. No city boys here. Well, she called them city boys, Uh, but like... They were not. No. (laughs) (laughs) You see, 1895 wasn't exactly a great time for America in general. The country was in a horrible economic depression. All the unions were on strike. Slavery was gone, but we were still super crazy racist. Immigration was at an all-time high. Religion was strict. Abortion laws were stricter. And doctors were just pretty much wealthy gentlemen with a briefcase full of cocaine and some big ideas. I like it. What a time to be alive. They were all Mandy. Yeah. (laughs) It also should be mentioned that this part of West Virginia, also known as most of West Virginia, is Civil War country. Mm. And the states had only pretty recently decided to stop killing each other. Remember, the American Civil War ended in 1865, a mere 30 years earlier, which makes it a rather fresh wound for all of those involved. And a great many survivors were still alive. Those abandoned battlegrounds, makeshift military hospitals, and overstuffed cemeteries were still standing. 
And for many, they were a very real reminder of a harrowing time they didn't care to relive. This would have given this whole area and series of towns a rather haunted quality that was very hard to ignore. Mm. And in the late 1800s, ghosts were nearly scientifically real to most people. Right. This was a time where they're like, well, yes, the ghosts, Mm -hmm. they're coming. It's fine. (laughs) Add to that the fact that we're out in Appalachia where folklore and superstition really live. And you've got yourself some pretty nervous people. And they have very little to hold on to. This is very important to remember as we move forward. These are not people who are questioning a ghost. Okay. But haunted or not, Zona fought her way through these mean streets and (laughs) I had a feeling you'd like that one. These mean areas. (laughs) Those mean areas, dirt roads. And one day, less than a year later, in October of 1896, as luck would have it, she happened upon a very handsome stranger. Oh my. Yes. This tall, dark-haired man had recently arrived in town. He was a blacksmith. He had all of his limbs and teeth and he was not actively coughing up blood. Wow. I know. Winner, winner. In other words, he was perfect. Yeah. Wow. His name was Erasmus Stribling Shoe. I mean, he sounds rich. Doesn't he, though? He's, I mean, he's, he does okay. <laughs> is his name easy to say? No, it is not. Which is why, to some people, he introduced himself as Edward. Remember, at the plaque Uh, we uh read, they called him Edward. That's just because it's easier to say. Where did he get that name? He just decided. Erasmus? Yeah, he was like, Erasmus, that's rough. I'll be Edward now. But none of that mattered because everyone called him Trout. This poor guy. I know, but that was a nickname he liked. Okay. He'd be like, my name is Edward. It's really Erasmus, but call me Trout. (laughs) You're like, wait, what? (laughs) Trout it is. Okay. Why did people call him Trout? I don't know. Why do you think someone would be called trout? Let's go with that. Because they caught a trout once. That works. And they were like, hey, we should call you trout. Hey, they, they ate like a lot of trout one time. And they're like, yeah. oh, trout. Yeah, they were like, what do you like to eat? I like trout. Oh, <laughs> Call you trout. Yeah. They had big bug eyes and a weird mouth. Yeah, maybe you looked like a trout. Maybe you look like a trout. He doesn't. I hate to say this because okay. he's not a great guy in the end, but he is good looking. Okay. Especially for the time when people were like kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was good looking. Maybe he just always had trout on him. Maybe. And people were like, hey, trout. Yeah. <laughs> just like, you guys want a trout? Got one in my pocket. Trout guy. <laughs> that sounds, I like that one. That's yeah. the one. Trout was born and raised in the neighboring county of Pocahontas. Oh, Pocahontas County. Uh, but it's not as though neighboring communities interacted much. So Zona and many other people in Greenbrier didn't really know him. And so Trout was a mysterious tradesman who blew in on the wind. He traded Trout. How romantic. Okay. Nothing better than trading a Trout. And Zona and Trout fell in love (laughs) and were instantly inseparable. Okay. She was, whatever he was selling, she was buying it. Trout. Trout. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I can never see a Trout again. I wouldn't know one if it it fell through the ceiling right now. That's a handsome Trout. (laughs) Maybe that's what they said about him. (laughs) Trout's father was a blacksmith, and he had taught him the trade, which is what brought him into town. Trout was offered a job in a forge belonging to a man named James Crookshanks. Ooh, like Crookshanks. Exactly. Like in Harry Potter. Yeah, which sounds made up, but isn't. This is real. James was kind of a big deal in the world of smithery. 
and had his hand in the trade all over the state. In those days, and really in all days, learning a trade was the most stable path in life. Blacksmithing came with a guaranteed income and job security. So even though they'd smell like a campfire all the time and likely end up with black lung before they were 40, bagging yourself a blacksmith was pretty enviable. Yeah, that's nice. It's a pretty big achievement. So things are now going pretty well for Zona, I would say. Get it, Zona. Good looking guy from out of town. Mm -hmm. And he's a blacksmith. Guy with the trout. Yeah. A plus. Endless supply of trout. Endless trout for days. (laughs) But there was just one problem. Her mother, Mary Jane, hated trout. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was coming. She's like, gross. Can't we have chicken tonight? I hate it. (laughs) But why? You must be asking yourself. I knew it. Oh, well, uh, it turns out he wasn't as great as Zona made him out to be. For starters, Trout was roughly 13 years older than she was. And for seconders, while I did say that a lot of people in Greenbrier didn't know Trout, I didn't say that everyone in Greenbrier didn't know him. He's got a reputation. He sure does. And those who did know him, well, they didn't have great things to say. It seemed he was violent and short-tempered and had a spotty history when it came to women. Yeah, so they're like, not a, not a great guy. You don't want your daughter dating him. He's not awesome. But none of that mattered to Zona, of course. And a month later, the pair had eloped. A month. They dated for a month and they're like, we're going to get married without any of our families there. Not a thing in the areas in West Virginia. Mm. But they were able to buy a big two-story farmhouse because Smithery does pay well and settle down just before Thanksgiving to begin their lives together. How nice. Yeah. Zona was thrilled. Mary Jane was not. <laughs> but things seemed to be going well. Zona said she was happy and it's not as though she was a child. At this point in time, she was 22 years old and she was a married woman. So like it or not, Mary Jane just had to live with Trout. Yeah. The holidays passed without incident. And then just after the new year, Zona fell ill. Trout was devastated. He hated seeing his young wife unwell, and so he called upon Dr. George Knapp, <gasps> spelled just like my last name. Oh, man. Are yeah. you guys related? I don't know. Okay. Kind of hope not. Yeah. <laughs> <We'll> okay. <see. laughs> Dr. Knapp was called upon to care for Zona, and every hour when uh, Trout wasn't at work, he was sitting at Zona's bedside, diligently caring for her. He was like bringing her water or snacks and sitting with her, holding her hand. And he made sure the doctor was there regularly. In his notes, Dr. Knapp stated that he saw Zona for, quote, female trouble, Hmm. which back then really could be anything from severe mental illness to a head cold. Right. (laughs) Pick pick one. That's the year got the females. Got them. Could just be tired. She could just be annoyed. Right. Maybe too much mercury or something. She feels real crazy. It's Mall fine. Trout. There's no way to tell. Yeah. Truly, there isn't. And that brings us to January 22nd, 1897. It was a freezing cold morning and Trout had to head off to work. On his way to the forge, he stopped at his neighbor's house. His neighbor, Martha Jones, was a beloved community staple whom everybody called Aunt Martha. I love it. It's like a Pam. It is. <laughs> She's so cute. Okay. Everybody loves Aunt Martha. She's the one that you'd be like... Aunt Martha, we need help with these cookies. Can you come over? And she'd be like, Aunt Martha will bake your cookies. Yeah. She's great. Aunt Martha also had an 11-year-old son who also called her Aunt Martha. 
I love it. I'm not 100% sure why, but it was cute. And her son's name is Anderson. Cute. What a like formal little man name, right? Anderson was an industrious kid who would run errands and do odd jobs for Trout and other guys in the area occasionally. That morning, Trout asked Aunt Martha if Anderson would stop by his house to check on Zona. He was worried about leaving as it was particularly cold outside and she had mentioned she might go and try to gather some eggs. He was like, you're ill. You should not gather eggs. I'll send a boy. Someone bring me a boy. And they did. Aunt Martha said that Anderson was busy that morning, but she knew how ill Zona had been, so she'd make sure he found time to go over and check on her as soon as he could. By 11 o'clock, however, Trout had impatiently began to inquire whether Anderson had checked in on his wife or not yet. So this is something that gets me a little bit. He was going to going all the way back to his neighbor's house to be like, did you check on my wife? Just go check on your wife. What are you doing? You didn't walk all the way back? That's so weird. In some versions of the story, he like sends a telegram, which makes more sense. However, in the newspapers of the time, which I did read, he's going there talking to Aunt Martha. So it's red. That's one of the many red flags. Aunt Martha tells Trout, no, Anderson has not gone over there yet. I did tell you he was busy. So Trout gets really kind of visibly annoyed and then says, well, tell Anderson also to tell my wife that I'm not going to be home for lunch and that he needs to go over soon. And he goes back to the Iron Forge to smith some stuff. By the time Anderson is finished with his morning tasks and has eaten his own midday meal, and good for you, eat your lunch. (laughs) Take care of you, Anderson. (laughs) He heads out again through the snow to the shoe's large farmhouse. He recalls feeling uneasy as he approached the front door in the sort of silence that only comes after a heavy snowfall. As he climbed the front steps, he looked down, and there in the pure white snow was a crimson trail of blood leading under the door and into the house. Yeah, this blood is strangely ignored a lot. In the uneasy silence, Anderson knocked on the large wooden door, but no one answered. Anderson knocked a few more times before deciding to try the knob and see if it was open. As luck would have it, it was. I don't know if I'd want to go inside. There's like a blood trail on the front porch, but he did. Anderson stepped into the quiet house and noticed that the trail of blood wound its way through the front hall. He also noticed that all the doors in the house were closed. While this may not seem bizarre to you and I, the concept of an open floor plan was still miles away. Houses at that time would have had doors separating every single room. Some of that is because they didn't want to see their servants. Some of that was to keep heat inside. There's a lot of reasons, but they were all separated. And during waking hours, though, it would have been very odd to keep all of them shut tight. Anderson followed the trail of blood to the closed kitchen door. He knocked and received no answer, knocked again, and then opened the door. The room was empty, but he could still see the trail of blood, which continued up to and under the closed dining room door. It's like the grossest maze in the world. Anderson walked up to the door and knocked once again. And once again, he was met with only the same eerie silence. After a moment, he carefully opened the door and began to walk into the dining room. But no sooner had he taken a few steps through the threshold than his foot caught on something and he tripped. Anderson caught himself but looked down to see what he had gotten caught up on. 
and he was met with an awful sight. Lying on the floor, twisted in a pool of her own blood, was Zona Hester's shoe. She was staring straight up at him with her eyes wide open and her mouth twisted upward into a wicked grin. Anderson describes it as though she was laughing at him. Anderson screamed. He wanted to run, but he knew something was horribly wrong. He bent down to touch Zona and found that she was stiff and cold. And he knew then that she was dead. Mm. And the smile would have been like a rictus grin because she was stiff, which would have pulled the corners of her mouth up and back. So yeah, I imagine that was like pretty, pretty horrible to see. It's so weird that that happened. It's crazy weird that you turn into the Joker when you're dead for a little while. Mm. I know. I don't like it. Anderson screamed and freaked the fuck out for a minute, which Mm -hmm. like he's 11. I'll remind you all. That's terrible. Then he ran, still screaming, back to his house for, you know, screaming for Aunt Martha. His mother, Aunt Martha. Um, She, of course, came running out as soon as she saw him. And they ran back to the Shoes farmhouse together where she took in the grisly scene as well. Aunt Martha told Anderson to go tell Mr. Shoe what had happened and to tell him to come home right away. Then she told Anderson to continue on and fetch Dr. Knapp. Anderson, who couldn't even think at this moment, just did what he was told. Right. Okay, Aunt Martha. I'm going, Aunt Martha. (laughs) I'm taking cookies with me. (laughs) I hope he did after his midday meal. I know. (laughs) Anderson recalled Trout letting out a monstrous wail when he heard the news before running out the door of the blacksmith's shop towards his house. Anderson then ran in the other direction to retrieve Dr. Knapp. And when he and the doctor returned to the Shoes farmhouse, the scene had changed somewhat. Zona was no longer where Anderson had found her. Weird, right? That is weird. But we've seen a lot of crime scenes in this era where people were like, I'm just going to touch everything and move it all. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Dr. Knapp found Aunt Martha, Trout, and Zona upstairs in their bedroom. Zona had been changed into her wedding dress, which had a stiff high-necked collar and had a silk scarf tied in a bow around her neck. She was laid out in bed, and Trout was sitting behind her, cradling her head. How odd it seemed to have changed all of her clothing and carry her stiff, lifeless body up the stairs, a task that couldn't have been easy, because according to Anderson, she was in like full rigor mortis, which is not an easy time to carry a person up the stairs. And if you're anything like me, you can't help but fixate on the arresting image of this young woman lying dead in her wedding dress. Mm. But let me stop you right there. I have heard this story in its many versions quite a few times, And I've always pictured a ghostly woman in a white voluminous gown, right? Yeah. That is not what we're looking at. Remember, Zona and Trout had eloped. They didn't have a big wedding. And they also didn't have a lot of extra money. And Zona's family hadn't supported her wedding. And that's usually who's going to buy you the big Mm -hmm. bride dress, right? So the dress she wore when she got married was just the nicest one she had, which happened to be a burgundy day dress with a high lace collar. She was just kind of in normal clothes, but slightly nicer, which to me would have been scarier. This is how you would have dressed someone for a funeral. Mm. And, and I know most people would think this makes it better, but I think it's worse than the wedding dress because somehow it's more understandable to go all the way off the deep end and put your wife in her wedding gown if you're going to lose your mind than to just kind of like get a jump on things and put her funeral clothes on right away. Right. That's not where your brain normally goes. Mm-mm. It seems overly efficient, if you will. Yeah. 
Dr. Knapp entered the room and conducted his investigation with Trout still in position, cradling Zona's head. So clearly, Dr. Knapp is just kind of working around him. After finishing his examination, Dr. Knapp concluded that the young woman had died in childbirth. Wait, 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 right? Yeah. This can't be true, can it? Zona wasn't pregnant. This just wasn't logical. If she had died in childbirth, where was the baby? Dr. Knapp had cared for her for the past three weeks, pretty much daily with his own two hands. Didn't he think he, in his medical wisdom, would have noticed a pregnancy that was far enough along to end in a birth? Then there's the matter of time. Zona and Trout had only been married for a little over six weeks, which is hardly enough time, even if they conceived the moment they were married, to produce a pregnancy that could have been confirmed in that day and age. It's not as though they had a couple of clear blue easies laying around. We're still talking about the time where they didn't really think you were pregnant until they could feel the baby move. Right. But don't think I'm being naive. We all know that Zona had been pregnant once before out of wedlock. So who's to say it hadn't happened again? Mm -hmm. You never know. Maybe that's why they got married so quickly. Maybe we're looking at a shotgun wedding. Could be. But wait, so but how long did you say they would have been? They would have been married for like six weeks. Oh, okay. And together for three months. Okay. But I mean... Even in childbirth, I mean, maybe not childbirth, but like it could have also been like a miscarriage, right? That's where we're going. Okay. But the report originally said childbirth. Mm. So even still, even if they didn't abide by the married guidelines, right? I just said three months. That's still kind of a tight timeline for making a baby that would have been noticeable enough in 1897 for people to be like, yeah, you're pregnant. Right, right. But therein lies the crucial misfire in this case especially when delivered to a modern audience. It's the language. Perhaps what happened here was an event that makes all of these conflicting suspicions correct. Like Leslie said, what do we call childbirth without a child? Well, medically, it's usually referred to as a spontaneous abortion, a term which we all hate for reasons. Mm -hmm. But most of us these days use the term miscarriage. When a woman miscarries a pregnancy, she'll often go through the birth process just on a smaller scale. There is pain, there is blood, there is illness, and what you probably could call a scaled-down birth. Were a physician to refer to a death during this process, saying the woman died in childbirth would be kind of confusing, but not incorrect, Mm -hmm. right? The same could be said back then, except the confusion would have been a lot worse because the language surrounding all of these things was really strange and delicate and avoidant. I'll give you an example. It's stranger than you think. Hmm. According to her article entitled Miscarriage and Coping in the Mid-19th Century, Private Notes from Distant Places from a magazine called Gender and History, Volume 32, Issue 2, author and historian Felicity Gents explains that, quote, pregnancy was often described in euphemisms similar to those used to describe ill health, such as indisposed, unwell, or sick. For miscarriages, metaphors such as suffering from a cold, were used to describe spontaneous abortion, itself another term for miscarriage. Indeed, terminology remains a contentious issue when describing ruptured pregnancies, with the term miscarriage rejected by some as it suggested a failure on the part of the woman for not carrying the baby to term. Mm. This terminology wasn't just used by lay people either. It was also used by doctors. So your doctor would say she just has a cold meaning she's just having a violent miscarriage. Mm, Okay. Yeah, which I thought was crazy. 
Because I've definitely heard like, oh, she's indisposed. Oh, she has female troubles, whatever. But never she has a cold. Right, right. That's pretty crazy. But there were reasons for it. Uh, One was the passage of something called the Comstock Law in 1873. What's that, you ask? Uh Uh-huh, strap in. You may have talked about this before, Leslie. You've done a lot of these fun um, little trivia bits, but I'm going to go over it very quickly. In 1873, Anthony Comstock created the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. (laughs) They were a fun bunch. Yeah. (laughs) This is an institution dedicated to supervising the morality of the public. Don't have any fun. Don't do it. Later that year, Comstock successfully influenced the United States Congress to pass the Comstock Law, which made it illegal to deliver through the United States mail any obscene, lewd, or lascivious material. Mm, Or to go out with any Mandys. Don't be doing it, Mandy. (laughs) Stay home. It also prohibited producing or publishing information pertaining to the procurement of abortion, birth control, and venereal disease. And... That's like the hard and fast of it. You really couldn't talk about anything related to sex because it would set off the red flags. Yeah. (laughs) So surely you must be saying to yourself, this cannot possibly include medical professionals and students though, right? Oh, oh, but it did. Yeah, 100%. So how were people learning about sex, about conception, about pregnancy, about birth, about any of it, if people were terrified to talk about it? Oh, uh, they weren't. They just weren't. Nope. That's what's happening now. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because even medical texts and informational pamphlets were considered pornography. Mm -hmm. So it's no wonder when a woman had pregnancy symptoms, the doctor would simply say she had a cold. They didn't want to get arrested. Mm -hmm. So when Dr. Knapp spent three weeks treating Zona for a mysterious female-related illness, it is more than reasonable to assume that he thought everyone kind of understood she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. That's how we say it now. And maybe they did, but um, also maybe they didn't. Yeah. Maybe when she spent three weeks lying in bed sick to her stomach, their neighbors, family, and friends really did just think she was sick. I mean, it's pretty easy to get sick back then. There was like a lot of gross things mm-hmm. about. And it was also pretty hard to recover from a lot of the scary stuff you could catch. So this misunderstanding was more than possible. It was probable. Right. After his initial diagnosis was strongly contested, So Trout and anybody within reach, so basically just Trout, was like, no, she's not pregnant. That's wild. Dr. Knapp thought, I better better review my stuff again. I probably got this wrong. Mm -hmm. Who knows what pregnant looks like? Not me. (laughs) So he reviewed Zona again, thinking like, I guess it's going to be something else. And this time he concluded that her death was due to, quote, an everlasting faint. But there was so much blood. I know. Everyone ignores it. No one ever mentions it ever again. And I'm not saying that to like reveal it later. They never mention the blood again. But it's in all the police reports. So weird. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, because at the beginning you mentioned her like dying of natural causes or something. Yeah. And then you were like mentioning the blood. I was like, wait, what? Yep. So the term everlasting faint sounds like melodramatic and crazy, right? Like, like she a was Disney story. Exactly. I was so sad that I yeah. fainted and died. <laughs> My heart was broken. That's what it sounds like. But really, it was just another one of these coded terms to refer to a woman that had heart failure. Okay. Just a woman though. A man would have had heart failure. A woman right. everlasting faint. 
so romantic. I know, isn't it though? But um, those things are super different. Yeah, that's a very different. <laughs> it's hard to be like, yeah. oh, I was wrong. It was just a heart attack. I yeah. thought it was bloody childbirth. Right, right. Oh, crazy me. Right. You know, the blood coming out of the vagina is, it's tricky. And to... every time my heart acts up, I just, just bleed yeah. out of my vagina like crazy. Yeah. You know, you just don't, you don't know. You Mm-mm. just don't know if it's a miscarriage or a heart attack. Who's to say? Yeah. Who's to say? Well, nowadays we can say that spontaneous heart failure does not result in a trail of blood all over the house that can be traced directly to a vagina. But that's in, back then they had some real crazy ideas about women's health. Yeah, they just didn't know. No, because they weren't allowed to know. And other reasons, which we'll get to in a minute. Well, would it help if I told you um, that one of those reasons is that doctors only started entering the birthing room after the Civil War, which we just talked about being pretty recent at this point. And that medical school back then was only a year long. Ooh, I could have done that. Totally. So Dr. Knapp likely had seen not very many births Mm -hmm. and didn't really know too much about women in general because he wasn't allowed to Mm -hmm. and went to one academic year of medical school with some other cool old white dudes. And now here we are. It's so crazy. Yeah. (laughs) It's so crazy. It's nuts. So. Fine. He assumed he misdiagnosed a bad period that just happened to get yeah. with a heart attack. He's like, oh, periods are terrifying. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Just in general <laughs> for men, women and health troubles are terrifying. Yep. <laughs> but he's also diagnosing a heart attack in an otherwise totally healthy 22-year-old woman. But now you can see that this is entirely possible. Right. He just didn't have the diagnostic skills to say anything else. So after the exam was complete, Dr. Knapp sent for Zona's parents who rushed to their late daughter's bedside. But of course, they, um, the doctor and Trout didn't tell Zona's parents about the original misdiagnosis of death during childbirth. And by this point in time, I'm sure the giant blood trail had been mopped up. I mean, Aunt Martha is there. Right, yeah, for sure. Keep her shit together. Even still, Mary Jane knew that something in this story did not line up. Her daughter didn't just up and die. She stated then and there that she believed that, quote, the devil had killed her. Oh, boy. Yes. And just in the interest of complete transparency, as I mentioned, there was one woman on the scene who heard and saw everything in this investigation. And that woman was Aunt Martha. She knew what birth looked like Mm -hmm. and what a period looked like and what pregnancy looked like. And yet she said nothing. Why? Oh, yeah, that's weird. Well, the one thing I left out about Aunt Martha and Anderson earlier was that they were black. Oh. I'm pretty sure she wasn't about to argue with two high-profile white men. And I'm also pretty sure she wasn't going to let her son do that either. Mm -hmm. The lady of the house was already dead and there was no reason for Aunt Martha to join her. Right. So following the rather perplexing examination, Dr. Knapp took his leave. He was like, that's all I got. Bye. Mm -hmm. Zona was laid out for her funeral service the very next day at her parents' home. She was still wearing the burgundy high-collar dress she had been married in, and Trout sat next to her the entire time, still cradling her head and propping it up in her casket between a pillow and a folded-up sheet so that she would be, like, comfortable, so that her head would stay in place. Hmm which is admittedly a little odd. Yeah. 
But funerals weren't exactly a science back then. Most often, the body was placed on a metal table over a block of ice until the very last second, then placed in a coffin and covered with cushions, blankets, and flowers to mask the eventual smell. Mm -hmm. Yes, embalming did come about during the Civil War, but its original purpose was to bring the bodies of soldiers home to their grieving families, and it wouldn't have been widely used for cosmetic purposes at that time. Trout also acted strangely during the funeral. He wouldn't allow anyone to touch Sona or be too close to her. So if they got close, he'd be like, no, 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 no. His behavior toggled between extremely agitated, where he would like storm around and pace and, you know, just be like visibly very angry. And then the next moment he would be wailing in agony, Mm -hmm. grieving like crazy. After the funeral had ended, everyone who wished to convey their respects had done so. And Mary Jane began to clear off her daughter's coffin of all its effects to prepare her for burial. Because, mm-hmm. like, you used all the blankets and stuff in your house and um, you didn't have, like, 800 blankets, so you just washed them and kept them. That makes sense. I think I would never keep them. But still, yeah. I get it. Very different. So, Mary Jane took the sheet from inside the coffin, the one used to prop her head up, and tried to give it back to Trout. She's like, this is yours. Do you want it? And he said, no, 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 I don't, I don't want that at all. It's too, it's too much for me. Just too much. I must take my leave. It's indelicate to say, I'm sure, but after all of that time pressed up against a corpse, the sheet smelled kind of funny. Right. This, it's been like 36 hours at this point. No embalming. Right. Kind of rough. So Mary Jane brought it back um, to the wash basin, which I assume was in like a root cellar laundry area, backyard type situation. And she started to clean it. And as she did so, something strange started to happen. The water inside the basin turned blood red. A few moments later, the sheet turned pink and the color in the water disappeared. Thinking, what a weird stain that appeared out of nowhere. Mary Jane then boiled the sheet and hung it outside for several days because that's how you remove tough stains back then. You just boiled shit. When you hang them out to the the sun, the sun gets out all the stains. Right, but um, not this one. Oh, The pink stain didn't budge. Mary Jane saw this as an undeniable sign that her daughter had been murdered. Now, if we want to science this one, there's a chance that, I don't know, a body that had been dead for nearing on 36 hours had done some leaking onto that. And that's Mm -hmm. what we're talking about. And there's been plenty of morticians and, you know, medical examiners who have talked at length about how the smell of death is not easy to get rid of. Okay, fine. But this is what she gathered from the situation. And you know what? Okay, fine. Helpless, furious, and bereft, Mary Jane Hester prayed nightly for her daughter to come back to her and tell her what actually happened. Mary Jane prayed like this night after night after night for a whole month with no results. And she was beginning to lose hope. But that night, Mary Jane prayed as usual and went to bed. But scarcely had she fallen asleep that she sensed a change in the room. Through the veil of her eyelids, she could see a bright light. Mary Jane opened her eyes to see that the room had indeed been flooded with a cool white light and the air was so cold that she could see her own breath forming in little clouds in front of her. The light briefly became blinding and then began to dim. And when it did, there before her stood Zona, looking exactly as she had in life. Mary Jane wept. For the next three days, Zona came to her just like this. And during their time together, she revealed all the details of the tragic events that took her life. Sona told her mother that her death had happened the night before she was found. 
Trout had come home from the forge, starving as usual. Zona had dinner ready and waiting, just like he liked it, when he arrived home. She greeted her husband at the door, just as she always did. Trout, as it turned out, was uh, not as romantic of a guy as she had thought. He could be cold and cruel, and at times he hit her. Trout liked things a certain way, and Zona was expected to deliver them that way or else. Less romantic. After saying hello to her husband, she walked Trout into the dining room where their meal was laid out. And instead of sitting down to be served, that evening, Trout's eyes went black. Zona had prepared a simple meal of bread, cheese, jams, and some pickled eggs. Because, like, they wouldn't have any kind of fresh vegetables or fruit, so you had to have things that were in a jar. She hadn't been feeling well recently, and this was really the best she could manage, but it wasn't good enough. Trout whirled around asking her where the meat was that she must have prepared for their evening meal, right? Sure, yeah. There must be meat. Zona replied that, that there was none that night. And then Trout snapped. In a blind rage, he put his hands around her neck and squeezed with all his might. Trout was strong, and the force he applied crushed her windpipe and tore ligaments in her neck. But he hadn't intended to strangle her, oh no. Once he had a very firm grip on her neck, he twisted, and in one fell swoop, her neck snapped between the first and second vertebra. This is very important. And then everything went black. To demonstrate how it happened, then the ghost of Zona turned her head around 180 degrees. Yep, like an owl. That's how severe the damage had been. Her heart had not failed. She had indeed been brutally murdered. And this is why Trout was holding her head. When the tale was complete, Zona said goodbye to her mother, who vowed to get justice for her in this world and the next. Trout Shoe would pay for what he did. The next day, Mary Jane went right to the county prosecutor, a man named John Alfred Preston, and relayed her harrowing tale, begging him to reopen Zona's case. Now, while he couldn't reopen a criminal investigation based on, like, ghosts, John Preston knew that there was something there. He never felt right about Zona's death, so the least he could do was ask around a little bit, right? Yeah. In the days since Zona's funeral, the people of Greenbrier had also begun to talk. They didn't feel right either, and many of them were suspicious of Trout. Some of them simply had a bad feeling about him, but others, well, they had some interesting information to offer up. Remember that bad reputation? Yeah. You see, this wasn't Trout's first rodeo. He had been married before, and it didn't end well. His first marriage had happened back in 1885 when Trout was 24. He married a woman named Allie Esteline Cutlip in the neighboring town of Falling Springs. Allie had a large local family who were very well known in the area, lots of boys. Allie and Trout had one child, a little girl named Gerta or Gertrude, Lucretia Shue. Fatherhood turned out to not really be exactly for Trout. What a shock. Yeah. He didn't enjoy it. And honestly, he didn't enjoy being married either. He had begun to turn on Allie, and on several occasions, locals had seen him strike her. Allie's gaggle of big giant brothers, though, they didn't really like this. So one night when the moon had fully risen, they crept into Allie and Trout's home and ripped Trout out of his bed. Trout could be as mad as he wanted to be at them, but um, you're not going to win a fight of five against one. The giant strapping lads dragged him out into the woods and threw him into a freezing lake. They told Trout that if he ever harmed another hair on their sister or their niece's head, he would be taking another swim in that lake. But next time, he wouldn't be getting out. Maybe that's where he got the nickname Trout. 
Because he's swimming in a lake. Yeah. Maybe. They threw him in. They did. That's a good one. Yeah. Trout took this as a sign. Not to be nice at all. No, no, no. Yeah. He had to leave. Right, right. So in the middle of the night, when he returned, freezing cold and wet, he packed all of his things and left his first wife and only child in the middle of the night. He traveled around finding work and places to stay here and there for a little while and eventually landed in Greenbrier in 1894, where he met the next love of his life, Lucy Ann Tritt. That's right. We have another ex-wife. Lucy and Trout had a whirlwind romance and were quickly married. Sound familiar? But eight months after they tied the knot, Lucy died under mysterious circumstances. The rumor was that Trout had been on the roof of their home repairing the chimney when he dropped a brick that tragically struck and killed his lovely young wife. Oh, man. I hate when that happens. I know. What are the odds? I mean, there are odds, so it had to have happened once. I mean, yeah, somebody died that way, and it was real weird, but it wasn't Lucy. Okay. Um, Lucy died in February, and the fact of the matter is nobody is repairing masonry on a February day in West Virginia, especially to like a heating element that you desperately needed. Uh, And there's also no record of anything like that happening or him buying bricks or anything like that. So, you know, likely this was really just a rumor without a leg to stand on. But Lucy did die that February due to, you guessed it, complications during childbirth. Mm. Lucy had been six months pregnant with their first child when she went into spontaneous labor. Neither mother nor child survived the ordeal, and they were buried together in one unmarked grave in the Shoe family graveyard. But the sheriff wasn't satisfied the trout had nothing to do with Lucy's death. Although the childbirth was a factor, and that was hard to deny, trout had also been pretty violent with Lucy, a fact that could have sent her into early labor. And Trout did serve some jail time for this offense. But after he got out, he managed to somehow politely slide back into society pretty much unscathed, Hmm. at least for a while. But now the people of Greenbrier County were talking. And this was enough for prosecutor John Preston to pay a visit to good old Dr. Knapp. Talk about those scary periods. For as aloof as he seemed in his initial leg of this journey, Dr. Knapp told John Preston that he had never felt right about the death of Zona Hugh. Okay, one point, Dr. Knapp. For one thing, he was never allowed to conduct a full investigation of her body because Trout wouldn't let go of his wife, so she couldn't be examined. Hmm. This stunned Mr. Preston. He asked Dr. Knapp if he wouldn't mind conducting a full autopsy now. That is, if Sona's body was still in good enough shape to do so, and Dr. Knapp agreed. In one of the first cases of exhumation in the United States, they then planned to exhume Sona's body and conduct this autopsy. Now, when Trout was informed of their plans, he tried very enthusiastically to contest them. He did not want this to happen. And really, neither did a lot of the neighbors, because at this point, disturbing the dead was something that could get you haunted forever. Yeah, right. But... I mean, we already have a ghost at play. Mm -hmm. So I think she's fine with it. And the local authorities decided that nobody had a choice. It was going to happen whether they liked it or not. But Trout did have the right to be in the room as it did. And he invoked that right immediately. The body of Zona Hester Shue was then exhumed and brought to a local schoolhouse where Dr. Knapp performed a thorough autopsy. Schoolhouse. I know. I hate it. (laughs) Trout's out in the corner of the room whittling 
He just whittled the whole time. All right. Just low-key whittling something. (laughs) There were also a small group of witnesses in there, and among them was Anderson Jones, who had also helped dig up Zona's body. 11 years old. 11. Can't. Because... Poor kid. Because the temperatures had been so cold that winter, Zona's body was perfectly preserved. Yeah, when they brought her out, it looked like she had only been in there for a day. As soon as the doctor unbuttoned the high neck of Zona's blouse, he could see dark purple hand-shaped bruises around her throat. Oh, there you go. Yep. Her neck was floppy and disjointed. In fact, he could have turned it all the way around Mm. if he wanted to. The doctor carefully opened the flesh on her neck to discover that Zona's windpipe had been crushed, her ligaments had been torn, and her spine broken right between the first and second vertebra. Exactly like she told her mom. Trout was placed under arrest immediately for Zona's murder and put in jail to await trial. Mary Jane Hester smiled and waited to get on the stand. She was very proud of her daughter. In the few months that elapsed between Trout's arrest and trial, the media managed to get wind of this highly unusual case, and they wasted no time reporting it. In an interview given by Anderson Jones, he said, 11 years old, suddenly the doctor turned to Mr. Preston. They whispered together for a minute. Then Mr. Preston turned to Shu and said, well, Shu, we have found your wife's neck to be broken. Shu's head dropped. A change came over him that I can't explain but it certainly proved his guilt to me. Mm-hmm. Not, not influencing people via the media at all. The Pocahontas Times also reported that, quote, on the throat were the marks of fingers indicating that she had been choking. Good word. Not choked. Choking. Choking. Yep. Choking on bone. Mm-hmm. That the neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. The ligaments were torn and ruptured. The windpipe had been crushed at a point in the front of the neck. Now, this is pretty damning evidence, but nothing compared to the stunning story that brought them all to this point. Sona Hester's shoes returned from the grave to help her mother seek justice for the wrong that had been done to her. The media eagerly awaited this trial. I mean, it was going to be a lot. Just to hear Mary Jane's testimony alone, they wanted this trial to start. But the, and, uh, and when it happened, they were not disappointed. <laughs> the defense tried desperately to poke holes in her credibility, but Mary Jane was unflappable. The Greenbrier Independent printed the entire trial transcript, an event that was totally unheard of at the time, and it's too good to not read you just a little bit. Question. So the question would have been the prosecutor. I have heard that you, uh, or the defense lawyer, it's a lawyer. I have heard that you have had some dream or vision which led to this post-mortem examination. Answer. They saw through their cells without telling, without me telling them. It was no dream. She came back and told me that he was mad that she didn't have no meat cooked for supper. All right. But she said she had plenty and said that she had butter and apple butter and apples and named over two or three kinds of jellies, pears and cherries and raspberry jelly. And she said, I had plenty. And she says, don't you think that he was mad and just took down my nice things and packed them away and just ruined them? And she told me where I could look down the back of Aunt Martha Jones's in the meadow in a rocky house that I could look in the cellar behind some loose plank and see. It was a square log house, and it was hewed up to the square. And she said for me to look right at the right-hand side of the door as you go in. And at the right-hand corner, I saw the place just exactly as she told me. 
and I saw the blood right there where she told me it would be. And she told me something about that meat every night she came, just as she did the first night. She came four times, and I thought it was three, guess it was four, and four nights. But the second night she told me that her neck was squeezed off at the first joint, and it was just as she told me. So she was also given evidence, like blood evidence that she mm-hmm. found. Question. Now, Mrs. Hester, this sad affair was very particularly impressed upon your mind, and there was not a moment during your waking hours that you did not dwell upon it? Answer. No, sir. And there is not yet either. Question. And this was not a dream founded upon your distressed condition of mind? Answer. No, sir, it was no dream, for I was wide awake as I ever was. Question. Then if not a dream or dreams, what do you call it? Answer, I prayed to the Lord that she might come back and tell me what had happened. And I prayed that she might come herself and tell on him. Question, do you think you actually saw her in the flesh and blood? Answer, yes, sir, I do. And I told them the very dress that she was killed in. And when she went to leave me and turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it. And the very next time she came back, To me, she told me all about it. The first time she came, she seemed that she did not want to tell me as much about it as she did afterwards. The last night she was there, she told me that she did everything she could, and I am satisfied that she did do all of it too. They talked in a real fun roundabout way back then. (laughs) Question. Now, Mrs. Hester, don't you know these visions as you termed them or described them were nothing more or less than four dreams founded upon your distress? Answer. No, I do not know it. The Lord sent her to me to tell it. I was the only friend that she knew she could tell and put any confidence in. I was the nearest one to her. He gave me a ring that he pretended she wanted me to have, but I don't know what dead woman he might have taken it off of. Oh, yeah, I know, right? I wanted her own ring and he would not let me have it. Question, Mrs. Hester, are you positively sure that these are not for dreams? Got another question. I know. Answer, yes, sir, it was not a dream. I don't dream when I am wide awake, to be sure, and I know I saw her right there with me. So she was unshakable. Medical evidence was also intricately submitted, and Dr. Knapp testified as to his findings. The defense weakly tried to suggest that perhaps Zona's neck had been broken when she collapsed on the floor, or maybe the undertaker had not been careful with her body when transferring it into the grave, or or maybe the people who drove the hearse had bumped it around too much. Yeah. That could break her neck. Sure. Necks are hard to break. Yeah. But all right, fine. And it also had handprints. Yes. Dr. Knapp agreed that yes, all of those things could in some world be possible, but they don't explain the handprints on her skin. The case was pretty open and shut. And after an eight-day trial, a jury found Erasmus Stribbing Shue guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced him to imprisonment for the rest of his natural life. According to the Monroe Watchman, quote, taking the verdict of the jury as ascertaining the truth, then we must conclude that Shu deliberately broke his wife's neck, probably with his strong hands, and with no other motive than to be rid of her that he might get another wife more to his liking. And if so, his crimes are one of the most horrible, cruel, and revolting ever known in the history of this county. Now, the reasons... Many people list this as the reason Trout might have killed his wife was that he was quoted in prison as saying several times that he was not going to be convicted and he felt sure he'd go on to have at least seven wives. Dummy. 
Trout was without a doubt an insufferable dick, but I don't think this was the whole reason he killed her because nowhere was it mentioned that Zona more than likely saw the end of a pregnancy before she died. There is um, one cause for that, possibly, that we haven't discussed. As I mentioned before, in the medical community, a miscarriage is called a spontaneous abortion, but that doesn't rule out the possibility of its counterpart, which is a planned abortion, which would have been entirely illegal at the time, but it still happened. And I think it's pretty clear that while he liked women well enough, at least for a little while, Trout had no interest in becoming a father. Do I think Dr. Knapp performed a surgical procedure on Zona? No. First of all, I don't, I don't think he knew how to do that. And second of all, if he had, he would never have mentioned childbirth in the first place. There were two methods of planned abortion in 1897. The first was a surgical procedure where water was injected directly into the womb. And this came with a 30% mortality rate. And the second was a bunch of herbal remedies, which were taken at home and proved to be equally, if not more dangerous and less effective. Do I think Zona took these herbal remedies herself? No, I don't think so, at least not intentionally. She would have never consented to seeing a doctor for her illness if she had. And Zona had been pregnant much earlier in her life when her situation was much less secure and she elected to have that baby. But do I think it's possible that maybe someone else had been dosing her with herbal uh, abortifacents? But who? Sure. (laughs) You know, Trout was capable of quite a lot of things and these remedies are not always quick or efficient. She could have potentially been sick for two to three weeks if she had been taking them. And sometimes it did take that long for the effects to set in. And when they did, I think Zona panicked. Here's how I think things went down, and everyone has their own opinion, but this is mine. I think Zona met her husband at the door, bleeding, and began hysterically begging to see a doctor. She couldn't understand what was happening, and so to calm her down, Trout told her what he had done, and she was furious. Now his wrongdoing would have been exposed. And if Zona elected to tell the authorities about any of this, Trout would be sent to prison. So responding for, to panic with panic, Trout chased her through the house into the dining room where he grabbed her neck and snapped it. All of a sudden, everything is quiet. Trout closes all the doors and hatches a plan to make the whole thing look like an accident. After the trial had ended, the jury was asked by several reporters what led them to their verdict. There was a ton of specific scientific evidence laid out in their favor. But time and time again, the jurors would answer, the ghost. That was a time and place where you just didn't fuck with ghosts. Yeah. And so do I think Zona Hester Shue came to her mother from the afterworld with a little white lie about how she was murdered? I absolutely do. She says it took her three days to get this story out. The story is probably not exactly what happens. It doesn't include any bleeding or or um, it doesn't include pregnancy. It just says, he came home, he was mad because I didn't have the dinner he wanted and he snapped my neck. Yeah. It's like a slightly easier version of the truth. And she wouldn't probably tell her poor mother all of the truth anyway, that would kill her. Mm -hmm. So it makes perfect sense to me that it played out the way it did. Am I right? Who knows? But one thing's for sure, all the men in the county of Greenbrier would think twice before ever crossing their wives. A few years into his prison stay, Trout Shue died from the effects of an epidemic in the jail. What kind of epidemic? It does not say. Just a cold. Could be. And at least that's what the record says. 
Some people say a lynch mob came for him. Mm. And some say the Greenbrier ghost got her final bit of justice. Zona, for her part, was never heard from again. Her ghost was able to rest. And 100 years after her death, the congregation of the Soul Methodist Church raised the funds to buy their most famous permanent resident a headstone of her own. Oh, nice. Yeah. And that's the end. That's a sad and... It's a sad story. It's sad. Like, it's sad and sweet. It's not really sweet. But, but it's, it's very story. fucking interesting. It is, yeah. Because most accounts of it totally leave out any mention of blood, right. any mention of a pregnancy. A lot of them say she fell down the stairs. Mm-hmm. But... She was not found at the foot of the stairs. She was behind, found behind the closed dining room doors. Mm-hmm. So there's no way that could have entered into it either. I've read a bunch of accounts that say Trout threw her down the stairs or and said she fell. Right. No, that's not what the police reports say. Mm-hmm. That's not what the court records say. And I find it interesting that at a time when you weren't allowed to talk about pregnancy, the pregnancy was entirely left out of it. Yeah, for sure. So, and um, yeah. just a weird product of its time. Yeah, and we would never latch on to that. You would never just say like, "Oh, they pro- that probably happened," and they're just not talking about it. Because mm-hmm. why would we ever imagine that? But anyway, I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, and like I fully believe that was a ghost. Like, how would her mother know that? Her mother knew every single injury that occurred inside her neck. Yeah, that is a little interesting. There's no X-rays. There's no looking. The doctor couldn't even tell until he opened up her neck. Hmm. There is no other way she would have known her exact cause of death, especially when nobody was saying that. Right. Oh, and you said that he was holding her head through Mm -hmm. the funeral, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it didn't wobble. That and also like, because I'm thinking like moms, moms Mm -hmm. are sneaky. Like they might, she might have like taken a peep. Maybe, but he was like, he wouldn't wouldn't leave her alone either. He was like really diligently next to her the whole time. Mm. But even then, you couldn't say her neck is broken between the first and second vertebra. Her windpipe is crushed and there are torn ligaments. Right. A doctor in that day and age could not have told that just by looking at it. Mm. I don't know if a doctor now could tell you all of that specific things without an x-ray or any kind of imaging. Right. And she just knew. And all of it was 100% correct. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that is the, that is the strange part of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not arguing the ghost. Okay. Definitely. I think I'm with you. Yeah. I'll be interested, interested to hear, like, well, what do you think happened? I mean, I, pretty much what you said. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that, like, a lot of people also say they think that she miscarried she like went out to greet him at the door and just started bleeding on the ground. Yeah. And then they ran inside and he was like mad because she was miscarrying and that yeah. was made her a faulty I lady. Mean, but I he didn't thought, want a kid. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I think that he would have caused her miscarriage. Yeah. Sure. I think that could have happened too. Yeah. And maybe she did fall down the stairs. But if her but if he had I mean if 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 it looked like he was choking her. Right. The, the handprints are there the on her neck. And there yeah. and there was no other violence uh, on her body. So the yeah. rest of her body, had she fallen down the stairs, even if she had done it very artfully, she'd still have bruising on her body from the stairs. There were no yeah. marks. And these are wooden stairs without carpet. You're going to have mm-hmm. impact. Right. I mean, at the very least, you're going to be bruised, if not broken in other spots. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing. Just her neck. 
That's why I think it was a snap panic decision because he didn't strangle her. Yeah. He just grabbed her head and twisted. And that's usually something where she's like, you know, in my mind, he's like, it's fine. It's fine. You're just, this is what's happening. We're not going to have a baby. I was giving you this. And if he realized like, oh shit, she's not happy with that. And I could, I could get put away for it. Mm-hmm. Wild. Yeah. Maybe it was um, his firstborn son came back for vengeance. Maybe. <laughs> I like that too. What about me, Papa? Ah! Yeah. Maybe. He will not have another child. I mean, that's more believable than why is there no meat? Broken neck. <laughs> I like that theory though. Like you're hungry, you know? You have no protein here. Yeah. It's great that you have all these different kinds of jellies. Of eating trout. There's like eight jellies too. Yeah. There's so many jellies. She was like apple jelly, apple butter, assorted jelly, berry jelly, apple jelly. She's home all day just canning. Yeah, and pickling things. She had like pickled eggs and pickled vegetables and stuff. The poor woman is just like... There's no refrigeration (laughs) either. So you just have like whatever you can preserve. (laughs) So I'm rewatching the Mindy Project. Oh, I love that. (laughs) And like when when she's trying to be a stay-at-home mom and every time her husband or boyfriend comes home, She's just like, if we're having mac and cheese for dinner, it was just like the or grilled cheese. It was just the same thing. She just like recrafted mm-hmm. the name of it. <laughs> With more jelly. Yeah. And this jelly. Yeah. Oh, Lord. <laughs> but yeah, you guys can make of this story, you know, what you will. You can let us know if you want to discuss because I think there are a lot of different ways you can view it. I think there are, are a lot of interesting theories. I think the most interesting part is the fact that this, the whole pregnancy and the bleeding was totally omitted from the story. And yeah. really, it was omitted until like kind of recently. That was not, right. it's not in any of the classic retellings of it. I found it in a different version. And then it does exist in the documents. Right. That's, that's the crazy part, I would say. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And the kid recounts it to the newspaper several times years later. Mm-hmm. He says like it was, there was like blood. Yeah. And then Aunt Martha came in, cleaned it all up. Aunt Martha was like, we got to clean this up. We're going to get in trouble. Hmm. Interesting, Holly. I like this one. Thanks. I thought it was an interesting jobber. I like that Trout got his comeuppance anyway. I do too. And I like that it was like probably legitimately a ghost. Yeah. So, ghost toast? Ghost (gasps) toast. I like it. So, to... To Zona, obviously, yeah. and her ghost. Mm-hmm. To Mary Jane, who like prayed until she saw a ghost and then took that shit to court. Toast. <laughs> I like that. Ghost toast. Anybody else? Yes. Okay. We have a best fiend toast. Ooh. Toast to Christina. Ooh, cheers. Thank you, Christina. Yes, thank you. And if we trusted the wrong men, Instead of our mothers, those damn city boys. I know. (laughs) We We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.
validation come to me.